sick yeah but i'm pushing through it because god forbid anyone ever miss a single core class <laughs> you might fail no joke my professor a few weeks ago said that kids shouldn't get up to go to the bathroom during lecture i was like oh that's re- actually nyu is an elementary school i don't i don't know if you knew that i'm just gonna start raising my hand I'm just gonna call him and be like can i go to the bathroom <laughs> <laughs> yo i would there would be kids who like did that freshman year who like raised their hand and Yo. professors would be like you don't have to you're an adult you can leave like, yeah just people go do that in my recitation i'm like yo it's not that serious yeah, it's like you are an adult uh anyway I, I love how we start out our podcast now just like talking to- about like NYU. our school <laughs> yeah <laughs> so we're, we're back early from our last podcast only been a couple of days but we had the opportunity to interview uh, Anthony DiComo, yeah, the Mets beat reporter for MLB.com, which he is our first guest, and that's really exciting. So that's coming up later in the show. Yeah, insert air horn sound here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm actually going to insert yeah. an air horn sound. Uh, yeah, so, so that so that's good. We're we had a nice chat with him. Yeah, it was really fun. So shout out to him for uh, just agreeing to talk to two college kids for their college radio podcast but in all seriousness it's a really exciting time to be a baseball fan um so exciting it's october baby yeah exactly uh it's officially october and hashtag october baseball is coming oh yeah we're coming to you on a tuesday and the al wildcard game is tonight so forgive us for not having any hot takes about what happens in that although my hot take prediction is going to be yankees 10 to 2 that's mine 10 to 2. Wow. I don't even know who's starting for the Twins tonight. Uh, Urban Santana. Uh, Santana. Okay. He's 16 and 8 this year. That just goes to show you wins mean nothing. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway. So, yeah. We are, we're recording this without the uh, benefit of foresight and like anything. We're, we're going to talk about the playoffs for a few minutes and it will probably end up being outdated because we're going to be like, oh, I can't wait to see all these Twins players. And then the twins aren't even going to be there. But you know, I'm not that excited for any twins players. So you're going to be outdated. Wow, you that's man. I'm you, sad. I am sad. Miguel Sano, it was reported earlier today, is going to miss the wild card game. Yeah, that's a shame because I went to a Twins Yankees game two years ago, and Miguel Sano hit one like 470. It was it went straight over the bleachers. It was like duck for cover type of home run. He's uh, not human. Nope. The playoffs are starting, and I, I start to get like a little tingling feeling in my <laughs> stomach. I'm serious. I get excited, man. This is like this is what it all comes down to. So this was kind of a weird season um, because we had the first half. We like our very first podcast. We were talking about hit two historically dominant teams in the Astros and the Dodgers, and now everyone has completely forgot about both of those teams for the most part, and everyone is just focused on the Indians and their quest to end their 68 year drought. But this kind of gets to a larger sense of. What is really interesting to people going into this postseason? So are there things that you're specifically excited for watching? I mean, obviously, the tingle in your stomach for October baseball comes no matter <laughs> no matter what October it is. Yeah. But this is, I think, a particularly compelling one because there were a lot of ridiculously hot teams earlier in the season, and a couple of them cooled off a little bit. But 
that talent that's on their roster that we were ranting and raving about and every single <laughs> every single episode for the first like six of this podcast was just like we couldn't go five minutes without mentioning the Dodgers like they are still the Dodgers <laughs> they still have all those really good players on their team so for you what are you looking forward to most um, now that October is all starting I I didn't really write anything down so I'm just kind of going off the top of my head so I'm probably going to forget some major things going down definitely tonight watching Aaron Judge just in the playoffs. This is our first um, judge-filled playoffs, and hopefully we see much more of him than just a few hours tonight because uh, I want to watch him just hit decisive home runs for the next month, (laughs) and they go like 500 feet. So that's going to be fun. And on the other side of the diamond, the Twins have a ton of really fun players, so I think the Yankees are probably going to win. I am probably, Mom, cover your ears, I'm probably rooting for the Twins, because I just think they are a really compelling, young, fun team. I really want to see Bartolo Colon in the playoffs. And is he and even going to get in though? I don't know. I feel like you just have to do it, just like for just posterity's sake. Like <laughs> you just want to see the camera come yeah. to him every once in a while. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Oh, he's not going to be in the rotation. I don't think he's going <laughs> to pitch an inning. But I want I want him to be there. His his aura. You know. Okay. Picture this tonight. It's like a five five tie. The game goes like 26 innings. Bartolo Colon has to come in and pitch like five. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, uh, real quick, uh, on the Aaron Judge thing, I just want to point out, with the season wrapped up, he has joined some very elite company because he is only the second player, I believe only the second player in Major League history to have a 30% strikeout rate and still hit 280, which is wild to me just I mean the dude strikes out like no other I mean he has you know one of the highest strikeout rates in baseball and that he hits the ball so damn hard I just don't get this is an aside that has nothing to do with what we're doing but the only other person to do that is Jose Hernandez in 2002 with the Brewers and the only reason he managed to do that was he had a 400 BABIP which is like the 12th highest of all time or something like that what year was it 2002 Oh, I was gonna say, was that from like a very early on season, and and that the reason that his bat bit was so high was because people couldn't move and no, field I have, the ball. <laughs> I'm just kind of boggled about how this happened at all. His strikeout rate was 32 percent that year. Yikes! And yet he still almost hit 290. Uh, so- Judge finished with 8.2 Fangraphs WAR. They were talking about this on Effectively Wild today. Yeah, and uh, that is, I think, fourth highest for rookies all time, behind like Trout, Shoeless Joe. I don't remember who the, the uh, number three was, but just to be in that company and to have a stretch of the season where he, all he did for like a, a month straight was just strike out is wild. But anyway, enough ranting about Aaron Judge. We figured we might as we're, well get it in. We're excited to see him. I, yeah. In case you weren't in, in case you weren't aware. I mean, we might as well get it in now because like in the chance that they get eliminated, no one wants to listen to us just rave about Aaron Judge while his team's not even in the playoffs anymore. But yeah, so. I think what I'm looking forward to a lot is I hate to be I hate to enter into the echo chamber, but I'm really excited to see the Indians at full strength this year. They had a lot of weird things go wrong for them last year in terms of injuries and Trevor Bauer got assaulted by a drone and like one of the underrated things from Did you know I think that happened again this year. Like I saw a story a couple weeks ago that like he was playing with the drone again and got hurt by it. What? It's like a yearly thing. How did we not talk about this? Oh, uh, nope. I that's that's wrong. Fake news on the podcast? Fake news on the podcast. But he did lose it. So every year 
we're going to have some sort of Trevor Bauer drone story. I'm worried for what's next. The drone <laughs> attacks someone else from the other team. Just like progressively anarchy. But no, so they had a lot of weird things go wrong last year, and they lost like some top-of-the-rotation starters that they have this year. So one of the underrated things from 2016 was just, I mean, underrated among like the casual fan because everyone was just gushing over the Cubs and the curse and all that stuff, but was the way that Terry Francona chose to use Andrew Miller. And he doesn't have to do that this year, right? So he can use him in sort of like a... He can pick his spots a little better with him, and hopefully Andrew Miller still has an arm by the end of the postseason, whereas like last year he was pretty burned out. So I'm really excited to see just how he chooses to use Miller and that strong bullpen in general because he doesn't have to. The way His hand is not forced. So let's see if what he was doing was because he thought it was the best option or just because it was his only option last year. I'm excited to see those mind games. And I've talked about Terry Francona on this podcast a few times, but just I admire him as a manager, and I think he seems like a really cool dude. So hopefully they don't get bounced in the first round by like the Twins <laughs> or, or the Yankees. Yo, um, we're gonna we're gonna see some madness this year. I'm kind of excited. We got some uh, some fun team. I mean, I'm still pulling for my Rockies, obviously. Um, I think what was what was my take that they're making it to the NLCS this year? Yes. Yeah. No, the World Series. Oh, they oh they have to win the NLCS. Yep. Fuck. <laughs> All right, so they have to beat the Dodgers and then either the Nationals or the Cubs. Oh, okay. But first they have to get through the Diamondbacks. This is a piece of cake. <laughs> I don't know what anyone's talking about. Uh, yeah, no, that's it's in the bag. The other thing uh, I'm worried but also excited about because I, I hate love the Nationals because like a baseball team that is this good and this loaded with talent and that is performing in the way that they did this year, they won 97 games this year. Like, let's be real. That's ridiculous. But is obviously a rival of the Mets um, and has so many players that I dislike. I feel like I need to continue my trend of just picking them to win the World Series every year because that way I reverse jinx them. So right here, right now, Nats, World Series champions 2017. How do you uh, feel? That's a take, certainly. I don't know if I agree with it, but... Not the point. I, I could see it. I mean, the thing is, like, these next few weeks are just essentially a toss-up. Like, any one of these teams could win. You could tell me, like, right now, like, for certainty that XYZ team is going to win. And I'd be like, yeah, that uh, makes sense. These are, we do have some of the historically best teams ever. And it's very weird because, like, we talked about the Astros for, like, the first few weeks of the season. And, like, the Nationals here and there. But these are, like, two teams who have just quietly been great like amazing the entire year but have just happened to be overshadowed by the historically good Dodgers and the historically bad Dodgers <laughs> and the Indians who just may have they lost in the last few years I don't really remember so I can't remember the last time they lost in dramatic fashion yeah uh anyway at the risk of bantering far too long before our interview There's with no such thing <laughs> uh, before our interview with Anthony Nicomo, just to wrap things up, both of our teams, as you might know, are eliminated from the playoffs. What the the A's and Mets aren't in the playoffs? Why are we even watching? What? Um, yes. So both of our teams are eliminated from the playoffs, and they have been for a long time. They had two of the worst records in the league, but. That being said, they've traded away a lot of good players in the last few years, so there are many former Mets and former A's who are 
in contention for a World Series ring this year. So just to kind of put a bow on our fandom this season and switch over to our appreciation for other teams, yeah, we are going to list and talk about those foreign players and who we want to see get a ring the most. So for me, as a Mets fan, it's got to be Curtis Granderson, uh, just because... I mean, we talked at length when he got traded, but just the ultimate good guy and someone I want to see come back as the Mets manager. <laughs> oh, my God. I, not to play into our trope, but I love him. I love him so much. He's just fun to watch, <laughs> and he is a genuinely good guy. And I think of every player in the playoffs this year, I think you could argue that he deserves it more than anyone else, pretty much. And rounding out this list for me, a guy that I kind of forgot about because he's very old and it's been a long time since he made a big impact on the team that I was watching regularly, but that's Carlos Beltran. People forget how ridiculously good he was for the Mets. And he will go into the Hall of Fame, I assume, at some point, and he will probably go in with no hat. But I think his peak was for that for the Mets team that made it to the NLCS and lost in tragic fashion. So I feel like he almost got robbed of one that year. And we as a fan base got robbed of one that year, which I don't want to talk about anymore. But I would like to see him. I I, I like to see the older guy get a ring. And I think he's been uh, really graceful about the way that he's aged and about the skills that he's lost. Like when the Astros had the uh, funeral for his glove <laughs> because he's only DHing Amazing. and he will never see the field again. Yeah. I think that's really funny. So I think it would be cool to see him get a ring. And that Astros team is fun. Um, he's one of the best switch hitters of all time, which I feel like I forget sometimes that he's a switch hitter. But I think that you put him up there of guys who hit from both sides of the plate. He was one of the best to do it in terms of like all around skills. And especially like you mentioned skills that have has dropped off. And you mentioned skills that have dropped off in the last few years. And he hasn't really run much as of late. But like... <laughs> I think the last time I checked, he he has like 300, I mean, more than 300 career stolen bases. He's like a 300, 300 player, which, especially for a switch hitter, is, I think, pretty rare. So Yeah, he was, I mean, he was ridiculous, at his peak. One of the more underrated, I think, just because he's aged out of it for so long. Um, but anyway, I often, one of my fatal flaws as a baseball fan slash analyzer slash someone who claims to be tuned into the game is that I forget who's a switch hitter all the time. And so when someone comes up and is hitting from the opposite side of what my brain thinks they should be hitting, I'm like, what the hell is he doing? Yeah. <laughs> someone who I forgot for a long time was Azdrubal Cabrera. Just because he, I mean, the Mets signed him, but he didn't like come up through the Mets farm system. And he wasn't someone who was on my radar before he was on the Mets, really, because he was in the other league. And, you know, it's not like he was Mike Trout. So he came to the Mets and for like at least a season every single time he came up and hit on the right side, I was like, what is this guy doing? <laughs> um, on to the, the next Met that I would like, the next former Met said, that I would like to see get a World Series ring. I'm going to go with Jay Bruce here. I didn't feel great about putting him in, in the third slot, but when I thought more about it, I I enjoyed my time with Jay Bruce as a Mets fan, and I wasn't a crazy big fan. Did you? Yeah. I just feel like it was pretty love-hate at times. You uh, <laughs> you had some rants to me about why Jay Bruce is still a Met, and I hope he's not a Met the following season, and why is he still playing in the field, and why? <laughs> Listen, the AL suits him. Yeah, it does. Uh, it does. He, I mean, he's still playing out in the field, right? He's not just DHing for that team, but he's been on a tear since he went over to the Indians. It's been incredible. Yeah, and I maybe it's that lost lover mentality that 
once they're gone, you appreciate everything they did well. But I, I think this generally comes from the fact that I would like to see the baseball team from Cleveland go on to get a ring. I think that would be that would be like the storybook ending that everyone deserves. Well, I'm, that never really happens in baseball. But and then rounding out, I, I have six here just because there were two guys at the end that I couldn't leave off. Four, I feel kind of lukewarm about. It's Justin Turner. Kind of still wish he was on the Mets. <laughs> He's really good. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't mind seeing the Dodgers win, so by proxy, I wouldn't mind seeing Justin Turner win. He seems like he should be on Game of Thrones, and that's a fun thing that I think. And then dead last, not necessarily fifth and sixth. If there are some Mets that I forgot in the middle there, that's fine. But dead last have to be uh, Murphy and Oliver Perez. <laughs> <laughs> no Clippard mention, huh? I'm, uh, I'm pulling for him, I, th- I think. I don't... <laughs> See, he he's the one of the few that checks both boxes. He yeah. is a former A and a former Met. I don't feel very strongly about him. Do you remember when the Mets traded for Tyler Clippard and I, I texted you and I said, ha I just stole your bullpen. And you were like, yeah. yeah. I, was like, I was like, bye. You were literally like <laughs> kicking him out the door. But anyway, you know, I have a complicated fandom relationship with Daniel Murphy because he dragged the Mets to the 2015 World Series. But I just don't want to see the Nationals win because then... And yet they are your pick. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to see the Nationals win just because then the Mets, every single time the, the Mets play the Nationals next year, it'll be like the Mets matching up with the reigning World Series champions, and I'll just roll my eyes every single time, and it'll be really depressing. Uh, but yeah, that, that rounds it out. And obviously Oliver Perez, I don't even need to say why I don't want him to win a World <laughs> Series. I'm pretty sure the Mets are still giving him checks. Anyway, so how about you, the A's, A's former players? They are abundant, huh? So I'm just going to... And I'll, I'll hone in on some guys who I'm pulling for, but real quick, um, the the good people over at Athletics Nation compile the list of the former A's who uh, will be competing in this year's playoffs. You have to think about it. There are ten baseball teams who made the playoffs. There are. So what you probably figure there's like four, five, maybe six or seven former A's who are in the playoffs and you know bounced around to other teams over time, right? There's about enough to make up a 25 man roster of their own. <laughs> I'm just going to I'm just going to go down this list for you real quick. Sonny Gray, Matt Holiday, Bartolo Colon, Adam Rosales, Pat Neshek, Carlos Gonzalez, Luke Gregerson, Tyler Clippard, Josh Reddick, Brad Peacock, Matt, Max Stasi, Dan Otero, Craig Breslow, Edwin Encarnacion, Drew Pomeranz, Fernando Abad, Rajay Davis, love, Chris Young, Rich Hill, <laughs> Brandon McCarthy, Andre Ethier, John Lester, Ben Zobris, Addison Russell, Stephen Drew, Joe Blanton, AJ Cole, Sean Doolittle, Gio Gonzalez, Ryan Madsen. Wow. Catch your breath. <laughs> Good Lord, and that is a good-ass team if you put them all on the same team. (laughs) You know, like, as an Ace fan, you make jokes all the time. It's like, oh, what if you could, like, make a team out of all the guys who you, like, traded away? Or, like, oh, we trade away so much talent. But holy crap, we traded away so much talent. (laughs) I know that this is, is like, over the last decade or so. Like, Joe Blanton has not been an A in years. He hasn't Uh, been good in years either. (laughs) Um, Every single time he comes out of the bullpen for the Nationals, I'm like, damn, Joe Blanton's on the Nationals. He's on a team. <laughs> and, like, has been good in the last few years. I mean, he was good yeah. for he was like, good for the Dodgers. He stuck that graceful landing into the bullpen. Yeah, I mean, he, he, re- he really retooled his career. Um, I'm excited to see Sonny Gray. I'm really sad it's not going to be in an A's uniform, but I... If you uh, see him. my my Well, true. I'll be excited to watch him tonight. Uh, or I guess not watch him tonight. Well, anyway, I'm... 
I'm pulling to, see, but I want the twins to win, so I don't even know. I'm glad he's there. <laughs> Look at all the right? conflicts in the studio right now. We all we're getting pulled in multiple directions. Biggest names that pop out to you though, real quick, because we got to get to that Tacoma interview. Uh, Bartolo. True. Again, hoping he gets there. These Although, are. He's won a World Series before though. Yeah. Does he but, need another? He won one and like. No, but uh, if we're just talking guys who I'm excited to watch this postseason, fingers yeah. crossed. Hopefully, that'll be fun. Oh, Josh Reddick. I am so excited to watch him in the playoffs. His now long, that, flowing, greasy, gross oh, hair. So greasy. <laughs> well, now that he's not getting base hits and doubles um, against your team, you can actually finally root for him again. Like yeah. every time we were watching an A's Astros game this year, every time he did anything good, it would just rip your heart straight out of your chest. And I was like, damn, I really feel bad sitting next to you watching this happen. <laughs> like I'm just watching you crumble but uh now that the a's are not there you can finally root for him with uh, a good conscience i'm pulling for rajay davis to pull some more postseason magic i know i know he did his thing last year but i i just love him as a player and i love him as a person and the grit that he plays with um goes out there leaves it all on the field love him i am it's a little weird watching him in a red sox uniform i don't associate him with the red sox at all but that'll that'll be good and then Sean Doolittle, who I... Just got married. Yeah, true. Yeah, congratulations. So... In the time that the the Nationals, like, clinched the division, don't have to play in the wild card, Sean Doolittle was like, I'll elope. Yeah, seriously. His wife, like, players are wild. His wife, like, tweeted out pictures and was like, we just had a day off, so, like, we just went and did this. And everyone's <laughs> like, oh, all right. Love it. Anyway, they look hella happy together. Yeah, congratulations but, to them. But Love I, is real. They'll definitely be hella happier if if they get a second ring this uh this fall so pulling for them on that one um lots of good guys lots of good guys on former A's former Mets so that's fun it's yeah, going to be a have, fun postseason we I'm have plenty of teams it. that we could find a reason to be happy if they won so even though our seasons were filled with disappointment yeah <laughs> it'll be a little better yo um, this is i'm juiced i'm get, I'm getting excited now now that we're talking about it <laughs> the blood's flowing <laughs> all right uh that'll do it for our pre-postseason analysis yeah but uh without further ado we're gonna get to that interview with anthony decamo so when we come back anthony decamo um mets beat writer for mlb.com All right, uh, just one quick note before we get to the Tacoma interview. There was a little bit of an issue with the audio at times on the call, um, just some static on his phone call and perhaps some wind, but please, if you can forgive that, um, it was a good interview, so enjoy, and uh, yeah. Today, we are really excited to welcome our first guest of the podcast, uh, and that is Mets beat reporter for MLB.com, Anthony Tacoma. Anthony, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good, good. So I feel like we have to start with the absolute mayhem that was this Met season. As a beat writer, how, what is that like for you, just in terms of how, how do you follow along and deal with this fatalistic fan base on a day-to-day basis? How, how are, are you sleeping at all right now? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, honestly, it doesn't, the, the record of the team or how the team does doesn't really affect my day-to-day as, as someone who follows the team, uh, there's always something going on. There's always something uh, to report on, to write on, regardless of whether they're a first-place team or a, or a last-place team. Um, I think 
the Mets in particular are a great example of that type of thing because the fan base is so invested and so interested in that. Uh, you know, while it wanes a little bit when the team's not as good, you lose maybe some of the more casual fans, the fans that come out when, when they're going to the postseason and all that. Uh, there, there's such a big, solid core of fans that are in on every pitch, uh, regardless of how the team is, and in many ways are, are more vocal when the team is bad. Um, so there's still a ton of interest in all the goings-on. There's still a ton of interest in, in what happens this year, what happens next year, what the team does going forward, and, and that much just really doesn't change. I, I feel like we we have to talk about the, the elephant in the room here, the news that broke in the last few days, and that's the fact that Jacob deCrom finally cut his hair. Uh, what, do you, what do you think this means for the team going forward? <laughs> I think people forget that Jacob deGrom uh, was uh, actually had a close cropped haircut for his entire life as a prospect, really, until he got to the big leagues. And then he started to, to grow it out. Uh, he had been he had been toying with this for a couple of years and couldn't quite pull the trigger. But I guess that finally changed. So yeah, I remember. I remember we'll last season they were saying uh, he was saying that he wanted to cut his hair after the season. And essentially Mets fans like talked him off the ledge about it. <laughs> Yeah, fans. I wonder if his agent didn't have something to do with that. Uh, there, you know, there are some shampoo endorsements I believe he's had in the past. I'm not even joking. Um, but yeah, I guess he got to a point where it was just too much to maintain. Hey, whatever works, right? I just want to say I'm for it. I think it looks good. It's a fresh start, you could say. In all seriousness, as you know, as Bobby alluded to, and as every Mets fan knows, and and I'm sure the team knew as well, right? It's a very topsy turvy season, um, and especially when you have something like this, I think a lot of people start talking about the chemistry of the team and how the manager plays into that, right? When a team is doing really well, everyone's like, oh, well, the chemistry is really great. And when the team is doing not so hot, it's like, oh, there's a lot of tension in the clubhouse, and so. Given how much I think bad luck fell upon the Mets this season, I'm kind of curious your perspective of things. Kind of being in there with you know uh, with the team, among the players, with the coaches. How did they? Was that chemistry? Was it? Uh, was did it get to be a little tense at all? I mean, and and how did Terry Collins uh, kind of play into that over the over the course of the season and respond to that? Well, chemistry is a hard a hard thing to pin down and a hard thing to define. And uh, I think by and large, um, you know, any team that wins, people are going to say they have good chemistry because they're winning. And, and uh, is are they winning because they have good chemistry? I think, no, in large part, it's the opposite. They have good chemistry because they're winning. Um, but how do you define that? Did the 1986 Mets have good chemistry? They were as dysfunctional a group as you'll ever see in your entire life. Um, but they won, so people said it's it's all fun. If they weren't winning, uh, everyone would have a totally different perspective on on what went on with that group. So I think it's a it's a tricky concept. I think with this year's team, um, it's a little it's a little interesting because they they were never really in it. They were essentially out of the races in May, June, and by midsummer, by late July, by August, when they started trading pieces off. Uh, Really, almost everyone with any bit of big league experience was gone. The leaders, the so-called leaders, weren't around the clubhouse on a day-to-day basis. You had really just Jose Reyes and Isdrubal Cabrera, uh, and then some of the younger pitchers who were getting a little older, like Jacob Degrom, for instance. Uh, you know, as as guys who 
were kind of in there and, and had been there and seen that and done that. But by that point, the season was so far gone that I'm not sure there was a tension. There was a, anything like that. I think it was just a team that knew this wasn't its year and was playing out the string and various guys playing for different things. Um, but no, I never really got a negative vibe from the clubhouse this year. And I think a lot of it had to do from that, that a lot of the older guys were gone. And, and you know, in September, the clubhouse was filled with 23-year-olds who were just trying to make good impressions going forward. So it was uh, it was loose towards the end. These guys knew what their situation was. And, uh, and it, it wasn't like a tight team that was coming out and had big expectations of winning and fell flat at the end. I mean, they had their expectations, but by the time we got to this point, uh, those were far gone. Right, and it is very interesting, that point you bring up about the young guys coming up, right? Because at a certain point, it takes a lot of the pressure off. If you know that you're out of the race already, right, you can kind of play every day knowing that maybe your job isn't totally in danger because you're in the playoff hunt, right? Or or you can you can afford to, to have a little wiggle room and, and bring up some guys who maybe wouldn't have otherwise gotten the chance to make that impression in, in August, September, the dog days of baseball, just because you you can afford to do that because whether you win or lose is not really the, the goal at that point. So I think that's interesting. Yeah, and then I kind of wanted to pivot a little bit to the other widely discussed thing this year, and that was obviously injuries. The Mets pin a lot of their team success on the health of their starting pitching, as has been much talked about, much written about. I've always been kind of curious, was this an organizational rebuilding directive to build around the pitching, or is this kind of something that these these young, hard-throwing pitchers just kind of fell into their lap and uh, they chose to take that opportunity, or did they always want to build around pitching from the top down? No, I think to the contrary. Uh, I think given his brother, Sandy Elderson would have preferred to build around hitting, but he inherited this organization in late 2010, and this is what he had. There was essentially nothing in the minor leagues hitting-wise of any great value or of any great potential. He inherited Matt Harvey, who was their top pitching prospect at the time. He, he inherited uh, Jacob deGrom, who kind of came up and, and became that guy. And then, you know, you look at the trades he made. Uh, they actually wanted a hitter for Carlos Beltran, the first big trade that the Mets made, and they wound up with a pitcher instead of Zach Wheeler, because that was the best deal that came across their table. So add one more to the list. Um, Noah Syndergaard wound up, you know, he was not the number one guy in the deal for R.A. Dickey that the Mets made a couple of years, la- uh, couple of years later. Uh, Travis Darno was another hitter, but Syndergaard panned out to a much better extent for the Mets. So I think it was a matter of circumstances. In some, in some of it, it was a matter of luck that they built this stable of young pitching. But uh, I think, as I said, given his druthers, it would have been the other way around because Sandy Elderson understands as much as anyone how difficult it is to build around pitching. The attrition rate is just so much greater. The injuries are so much greater. It's so much harder to predict even guys who don't get hurt what they will do at the next level, what they will do at the big league level. So uh, it's a difficult thing. I think you've seen in recent drafts uh the Mets have really tried to hone in on hitters uh Michael Conforto was the first one that they really hit on big time and that's kind of evened out now you look at the system and you've got a couple of big hitters that came up this year and Ahmed Rosario and Dominic Smith and there's really not a lot on the horizon pitching wise and I think that speaks to what the Mets have made a priority in in recent years 
Do you have a sense of kind of, I mean, it's it's clear that um, coming out of this season, they're doing some reorganization, they're clearing house a little bit, so to speak, right, with moving Collins around and, and getting rid of Warthen as well. Do you have a sense of whether, of, of what direction they're trying to go in, in terms of if they're just going to cross their fingers, you know, reset for next year, hope that the pitchers come back healthy? Are they going to try and retool some things? Because I know, I mean, I'm an A's fan, um, and I know how frustrating it can be to watch um, your front office not always commit to some sort of strategy, right? And just always try and compete every year that, uh, and then always end up like in the middle of the pack, right? So do you have a sense of what the goals are for 2018 and, and kind of beyond that? Yeah, this this front office still very much views this as a playoff team, as a team that can compete for for a title. And how realistic that is, I think, is going to depend on large part what they do this winter. Um, unlike last year, when they didn't really have a ton of holes, but they did have um, they didn't really have a ton of obvious places where they could improve the roster last year. They they re-signed Jonas Cespedes, and that was about it. They brought back the same team. Well, this year. They've got a ton of holes. They've got holes in the infield. They've got a hole in the outfield. They've got really a hole in the rotation that they'd like to fill up with someone durable. Uh, they can always use more relief help. So they have to go out, and, and they have a lot of things that they need to get done this winter via free agency, via trades. And uh, the idea is that they will do that. They will get some veterans, and they will get back to being what they thought they would be this season, which is a team built around starting pitching that is also capable of hitting enough to – to be a contender. And I think, you know, if you take a step back and look at this club, first got really good in 2015. They were probably a little ahead of schedule at that point, certainly making the World Series. I don't think anyone really saw that going into the year. Um, but 2016, they were expected to compete. They did make the wild card game. And this year, they were expected to compete. And realistically, you look at these windows for teams like the Mets, they tend to be in that four or five year range. And you look at the pitching, which is now actually pretty expensive. Um, with Matt Harvey in his final year of arbitration, Juris Familia is in arbitration. A lot of these younger guys are. Uh, you know, you wonder how long is this window just one more season? And if it is, uh, I think you know the Mets might have to go about things differently next season if they don't compete. They do the same thing they did this year, and guys get hurt and they stumble and and they're out of contention by mid-season. At that point, do they look at trading a Jacob Degrom, for example? And, and really committing to a full rebuild because they haven't done that. Uh, they sold off some veterans this year to save money, uh, to shore up their farm system only to a very small extent and that they acquired a bunch of relief pitchers that could be useful in the short term. Um, do they more commit to a rebuild if it doesn't pan out this year? I think it's certainly it's something they're going to have to look at. But as for right now, uh, they're not even thinking that way. They see this as a competitive team that wants to make the playoffs. Yeah, and I think the big thing with that that window closing is that that makes this next managerial decision so important. And I know it's obviously, of course, too early for us to kind of guess what those specific names may be um, because the season just ended a couple of days ago. But do you have any sense of uh, what kind of face they're looking to bring in? I mean, they've had one of the older managers, if not the oldest manager in the MLB for the last few years with Terry Collins. Do you get the sense that they want to change that and and freshen it up in this last year of that window that you talked about? Or where do you, where do you think they're, as an organization, their head is at for wh- what kind of manager can capitalize on this closing window? Yeah, I think you've got two things at play here. One 
is that you're looking at a team that, like I said, is, is not looking to rebuild. They're looking to win in 2018. And two, you're looking at that X factor, which is you play in New York. You have the biggest media market in the country that's coming out. And uh, I think in this day and age, uh, a huge part of the manager's job is media management. I think it's something that Terry Collins was very good at. Uh, he was good at kind of dictating the storylines and what the club wanted to say on a day-to-day basis. And I think uh, that's something that comes really with experience. I don't think it's something that many people are naturals at. So uh, I think for that reason alone, I think it's interested signing a manager that has done it before. Uh, not to say someone like Alex Cora, for example, who's getting a lot of early on. Can't do the job and do it at a high level, but I'm not sure that that's going to risk someone who hasn't done it. Um, because first-year managers can be tight with the media. They don't really know what to expect. Uh, they haven't really had to deal with it on a day-to-day basis in their lives before. Um, so I think experience is a huge factor. Then uh, you look at some people who might not have experience, like Cora is one, but uh, one that really kind of catches my eye is Kevin Long. And, well, he does not have that experience. He was the hitting coach here for the past two seasons, and he's very comfortable with the players. The players in the clubhouse like him a lot. He's comfortable with the media having been a hitting coach in New York and a pretty public one and a pretty available one for most of the last decade. So I think he checks a lot of boxes that the Mets would want uh, despite not having that managerial experience. So uh, there's any number of directions they can go. It sounds like they're going to cast a really, really wide net and interview a lot of people. And this is going to be a process that uh, takes the better part of a month, if not more than that. So I, I do think, though, when you look at this job in particular and you look at how the manager's job has evolved over the last 15, 20 years in baseball, um, these are no longer the most important decision makers in the organization. Most of that goes to the front office these days. These are instead kind of the day-to-day face of your franchise. It's the guy you put out there to answer questions. It's the guy uh, who takes a lot of heat when things go wrong. And I think you need someone who can stand up there and, and uh, has has at least to a certain extent done that before and, and knows the deal with it. All right, so we're going to stop drilling you on the Mets because I imagine 162 games of Mets business is plenty for any beat reporter. But more generally, I mean, we're two young journalism students. We work for our college radio. We worked for our college newspaper. As a beat reporter, what is it like looking for stories but really just um, little nuances that cross that threshold of something you want to report on, something you want to look further into. Being so close to the team, how do you take yourself out and see the team from an outward perspective and think, oh, this is something that I that people will find interesting or uh, this is a lead that I want to follow? Yeah, that's a really good question uh, because I think it's very easy to get lost in the day-to-day and you know, there's so much going on in terms of little injury updates and what goes on in the games and so on and so forth that sometimes you can't really see the forest for the trees and you can't really take a step back and and look at the bigger picture and and what might be of interest to fans. Um, You know, I think, well, for starters, social media is a great forum for that. It's a great place to get a sense of what people who are not involved or not around the team every day but are invested in the team emotionally, what are they thinking about? What do they care about? Uh, I think it's a great place to start. But uh, more than that, the access that this job provides is just tremendous. Uh, I think, you know, you talk about sports writing. Baseball is 
the king and it always was the king because you know baseball is quote-unquote america's pastime and i think the game lends itself to a lot of drama um but baseball writers over the years over the decades have fought really really hard for really good access and of the four major sports we have by far the best so starting in spring training we get to spend quality time with these guys every single day and if you're making good use of that time you can get to know them uh, you can get to know what's going on in their lives away from the field as opposed to just on the field, just what we see on the backs of their baseball cards. So uh, doing that, building those relationships, um, talking to people, that's how you really find interesting things that are going on with the team. And I think uh, if you're doing the job well, uh, you're, able, you're able to uncover a lot of those things. So it's an interesting mix of people on any team. It's an interesting group with different backgrounds, different nationalities, uh, different desires, different ages, different places in their careers. And uh, there's a lot of interesting things that do go on over the course of the year. So uh, it, it's a matter of all of that. And like so many things in life, it's a matter of showing up and uh, really kind of immersing yourself in it. But also, like you said, keeping that perspective where you can keep one eye on the bigger picture. I'm, I'm curious how the the nature of your job changes in terms of in season versus off season because i imagine in season um you know it's certainly not like a day job where you can go home after five o'clock and and leave everything at work right i mean you're it's it seems at least that it's the kind of thing where you're always on the clock whether it's on twitter or or trying to to pump out the game story or whatever it is and so when the off season does roll around. How does it change the the kind of work that you do? Does it more end up being like talking to agents or talking to people who are um, maybe not like not directly to the players, but people who surround them or surround the team? How does that uh, how does that change? Yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. Is it's uh, much less dealing with the players during the season. You deal with the players every single day. Uh, you deal with the manager every single day, and uh, most of the reporting uh, is just that. Uh, in the offseason, it flips. It's it's the front office. What are the team? What is the team doing from a personnel perspective? Uh, obviously, that involves agents, like you said. Um, a lot of that comes from relationships that you can build at, at the industry meetings, the GM meetings, the winter meetings that uh, take place on site at hotels during the winter. Um, so it, it does change, you know, from a personal perspective, it's, it's good and it's bad. You know, you get to have a little bit more of a, of a real person life. You can go out with friends, you can see family at the end of the night, you're working on a little bit more of a normal schedule because things tend to happen during the business day. Um, but that doesn't mean they don't happen at three in the morning. Sometimes uh, they certainly do. Uh, I like to joke that sometimes it's obviously with a lot less gravity to the situation, but it's almost like being an on-call surgeon. You know, you you're always have to be ready to snap to attention when something happens, and, and you never quite know when it is going to happen. So it's a lot of that. Uh, you know, the thing that I really like about it is that there are seasons to it, and by the end of the regular season, you're usually about ready to be off the road and be home for a little while and to enjoy that sort of lifestyle, and then... You know, by the end of the off season, you've been working from home and sitting on your couch and, uh, you know, making so many phone calls until your until your eyes bleed that you're about ready to go down to Florida and go to spring training and have actual in-person interactions with human beings again. So it's a nice mix 
Um, and it's a very, very different job, I would say, in the way in the way we attack it from from the off season to the regular season. You know, I am kind of curious um, because I know both Bobby and myself are very um, statistically minded in the way that we look at the game and the way we, you know, evaluate players or talk about it on this podcast. And I'm, you know, sure that's something that that you think about as well. I know a lot of beat writers, and especially with um, with websites like Fangraphs and Baseball Prospectus and this. Um, and this really wealth of, of information and statistics that we have at our fingertips. And I, I'm curious if there are any, not to bring it back to the Mets, but like, are there any players or coaches or, or front office people who you see as being kind of more tapped into that sort of thing? Because you know, I think some guys like to go out there and they're like, you know, I just, I just hit the ball, right? And my, if my coach tells me to do X, Y, Z, I'll do X, Y, Z. And then you have other guys like um, Max Scherzer, I think, or Joey Votto, who are willing to sit down with you and talk about exit velocity or something like that. So are there guys who, who stand out to you who um, maybe take in a little bit more of the um, advanced statistics sort of thing? Yeah, I, th- I think more and more you see it uh, across the game as guys who kind of grew up on this thing and grew up as fans reading this sort of thing uh, become big leaguers and become part of this. And I think more and more you see guys who uh, not even necessarily embrace it the way a fan would, but are aware of it and are aware of what it means more and more and are aware of what they can do. Uh, I'll give you a great example. I, I remember doing a story in spring training on Paul Seawald, one of the Mets relievers, and you know, he was struggling in the minors a little bit and could figure out why. And one member of the men's front office, who is very sabermetrically inclined, kind of gave him a hint that, well, you look at the results in your pitches and your slider is by far your best pitch, but you throw your fastball the most. And he said, huh, that's interesting. And he started throwing his slider more and started getting a lot more success. And I think you see little anecdotes like that more and more throughout the game where guys are open-minded and willing to change what they do based on what statistics that we didn't have in the past tell us. Um, I think you see, you know, another pitcher, Jerry Blevins is a great example of a guy who's well aware of all the things that you you might see on a stat sheet that players even 10 years ago would have scoffed at. Uh, I think you will see it more and more. Uh, Daniel Murphy and the fly ball revolution. You know, it's a great example. I think Kevin Long, the hitting coach, is one of the major proponents in baseball of guys increasing their launch angle and showing that that helps you hit more home runs and more home runs to the full side and doing those things. And Daniel Murphy is kind of like the godfather of all of that. Uh, Justin Turner is part of it. And more and more you see it throughout baseball. It's uh, one of the major factors that contributed to all the home runs this year. So uh, I think 10 years from now, it's going to be even more ingrained in the culture. I think uh, teams have to be not only be aware of it, but embrace it. I, every team in baseball has a large number of data analysts in this day and age. Every baseball writer, not necessarily is, but should be uh, versed in this sort of thing. And uh, like I said, if a year goes by, it just won't be more. Well, maybe we'll have to get a Seawald and Blevins on here next. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Uh, all right, Anthony, we don't want to steal any more of your time, but uh, we really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to us today. I-, I do have to wonder, though, as a beat writer, 
Um, if there was one team throughout all of history that you could choose to be the beat reporter for just because of the wealth of stories that are there, who would that team be and, and why? Oh, yeah, it would be the aforementioned uh, 1996 Mets. I don't think there's any. <laughs> and I'm not sure I would survive that experience. Um, just some of the stories that you hear, it's it's almost like you, you can't even believe that some of these things are true. Um, but this was not only a baseball team, but a very, very good one. Probably one of the best in history. So uh, to be even just a fly on the wall in that clubhouse, let alone a reporter, would would be an interesting experience. Yeah, it has spawned, I, I imagine, many a good book, including The Bad Guys One by Jeff Perlman, which I just finished reading. But yeah, God only knows what other stuff you could have uncovered back then. God only knows I, I think there's some safety hazards of just being on the job. <laughs> Thank God there was no Twitter back then. All right, Anthony, uh, thanks again. We appreciate it. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. Day. Thank you so much for taking the time. You got it, guys. Loves your mama, loves Jesus. In America too She's a good girl It's crazy about Elvis Loves All right, uh, that'll do it for our show. Um, thanks again to Anthony DiComo for being our first illustrious guest on the podcast. Yeah, big thanks to him. That's yeah. a, you know, I don't know if he knows it, but it's a pretty special honor. Yeah, he's he's bigger than Tim Tebow would have been for sure. Oh, totally. I mean, <laughs> this is a huge get, honestly. No, we really had a really good time talking to him and learned some really cool stuff that I think, we were talking last week that we never really know what goes on in the clubhouse, so it's yeah. all speculation. Um, so it's good to actually get someone who's who's been on the inside a little bit. Yeah, that was really fun. Yeah, so thanks again to him. More guests now. Yeah, yeah. Who's next? If you guys have suggestions, <laughs> send them our way. Again, I, I, that uh, that tipping pitches inbox is uh, is filled to the brim right now with notifications from Twitter mostly, and it's mostly <laughs> just us <laughs> retweeting <laughs> the tipping pitches account. But you know, send us some suggestions. Uh, tippingpitchespod at gmail dot com. Yeah. Uh, anyway, appreciate y'all listening and uh, enjoy playoff baseball. Yeah, the next time we see you, uh, some things will have shaken out. We'll we'll have a very clear view of what these playoffs are going to look like. So um, yeah, we will see you then. All right, bye y'all.